Live. I'm Carly. And I'm Pinky. Um, and today we have a local case we're going to discuss, the Ashland tragedy. Um, but we did take sort of a, a longer time. Right now it's Thursday and we're recording, but you will be hearing this on Friday when we post it because um, there was some breaking news about a uh, more recent case in, um, that happened in the Richmond area. Um, and so we wanted to go ahead and cover that kind of stuff um, so that you guys would be up to date on that. And, of course, it's local stuff, so we're always going to cover it. Um, so that's why we kind of took a little bit longer than usual. We wanted to make sure that you guys got all of the information. Yes, ma'am. And um, I forgot what I was going to say, so go ahead. Okay, so we will start with the Ashland tragedy. On December 23rd, 1881... In Ashland, Kentucky, it was the home of around 3,000 people, which is much different from the almost 22,000 people now. If you aren't familiar with Ashland, it is basically the area where Ohio, Kentucky, and West Virginia meet. If you travel across the bridge, you can be in Ironton, Ohio in 10 minutes and Huntington, West Virginia in about 20 minutes. Now, people from Ironton will come over the bridge to Ashland regularly to work, eat, shop, whatever. It isn't a very far drive at all, and most of the people who live in this tri-state area are familiar with all three states in some capacity. Among the residents of Ashland was a pretty well-known family, the Gibbons family. When retelling the Ashland tragedy, as it's called, many people say the Gibson family, but it was actually the Gibbons family. The Gibbons family consisted of a mother and father Martha and John, and three children, Robert, who was 17, Fanny, who was 14, and Sterling, who was 11. Robert, the eldest Gibbons child, was actually disabled. According to Wikipedia, Robert fell in front of an empty rail car that Norton Iron Works employees were pushing along the tracks and ended up losing one of his legs in that accident. Around 6 p.m. on the night of the 23rd, Martha walked across the street to her neighbor's house, the Thomases. We're both Thomases. Yeah. So. But it wasn't our house. No. It wasn't <laughs> our house. It wasn't our people. Yeah. We don't know these people. No. The Thomas child, Emma, was very good friends with Fanny Gibbons. Emma's last name was actually Carico because she was a product of her mother's first marriage. However, she typically goes by Emma Thomas because um, that's her stepfather. That was her stepfather's last name. And um, from what I've read, her real father didn't actually have anything to do in her with her in her life and all that kind of stuff. So for now, I'm going to call her Emma Thomas. Anyways, Martha Gibbons walks across the street to tell the Thomases that she was going to be leaving with her husband and her youngest child, Sterling, to go visit family in Ironton, Ohio, which I mentioned before was only like 10 minutes away, even though it's a complete separate state. Martha asked Emma if she could go stay with Robert and Fanny while they were gone, just in case Fanny would need help with Robert, as of course he was disabled. Emma's mother approved, and Emma obviously was really excited to go hang out at the Gibbons household with her friends and with no supervision. Neighbors reported that the kids were having fun and they could actually hear them laughing. Emma's mom would look out the window periodically just to check on the kids and make sure everything looked fine from across the street. Around 4 a.m. on Christmas Eve, 
Emma's mother, Mrs. Thomas, woke up for the day to do her household chores as she did every single day. First of all, <laughs> waking up at 4 a.m. to do some chores? In the 1800s, when the only thing women were supposed to do is basically have the babies, take care of the babies, eat. Not eat, but clean and cook, yeah. I mean, I guess, and not sleep. (laughs) She glanced out the window at the Gibbons house to check on the kids, and everything looked normal. After doing some chores around the house, Mrs. Thomas checked on the kids again around 6 a.m. and saw a strange light coming from the house. It appeared that there was some sort of light flickering in one of the windows, so she walked outside to get a closer look. Upon walking out the door... Mrs. Thomas realized it was a fire and ran towards the house screaming for help. Her terrified screams awoke the neighbors and someone was able to reach the fire department, but by the time the fire squad arrived, the house was engulfed in flames. Just to mention, this was long before 911 was invented, so people would actually call the fire station or police station if they needed something, or they would dial zero to reach an operator. Also, this was only five years after the telephone was invented, so not everyone had a telephone. Upon their arrival, firefighters were unaware that there was anyone in the house, so they spent the most time just putting out the fire, and then after the fire was put out, they went inside to check out the house. And to me, that was kind of strange. Yeah, so I was about to say, like, where's the communication? Because I feel like if you called, that's one of the things you mentioned. Yeah, and, and if the mom was out there, which I assume she was. Well, she's going to get my baby. He's going to get yeah, my Yeah, right. Yeah, so that was that was kind of weird to me. Um, but I guess they're just, like you said, a lack of communication. Almost immediately, firefighters found three bodies, and they were identified as Robert Gibbons, Fanny Gibbons, and Emma Thomas. Back then, there wasn't like detective detectives that would come in and rope off the crime scene literally the firefighters discovered these three bodies and brought them outside and put them on the front lawn to identify them the next step was to have a medical examiner which was at the time they didn't have medical examiners really it was it was just a physician like a regular doctor that you would go to so the doctor would examine the bodies and give an official cause of death Although the three bodies were very badly burned, according to the newspaper articles, the cause of death was actually the blunt force trauma to the head for all three teenagers. In addition to this finding, the physician who examined the bodies saw indication of very brutal sexual assault when looking at Fanny and Emma. Bed sheets and blankets, as well as a crowbar, an axe, and the children's clothing were taken into evidence due to the large amount of blood on each item. The neighbors reported that they did not hear any screams or notice anything out of the ordinary, so there were absolutely no witnesses to this case. In addition, there was no DNA evidence at the time, of course, so there weren't any tests available to differentiate between the bloodstains. So to me, it's kind of weird that they took this stuff into evidence. I mean, I get it, technology and science are constantly advancing, so maybe they just took it in to be tested later on, but, like, there was nothing back then. Yeah. So they were just, like... Taking these bloody items for what? So the only thing I can think of in which, I mean, I know is the 1800s, the, the late 1800s, but they probably didn't do this because of the fire, but they could at least take some fingerprints, don't you think? Or, well, there wouldn't be a system to keep the fingerprints in a database unless it's all physical. Right. Yeah, so they would have to, I mean, they could take fingerprints and they may have, I'm not sure, 
but they would have to compare them. Yeah. Like side by side. Yeah, this is all speculation. Obviously, we don't know anything. Right. That sounds dumb now that I've said it, so (laughs) (laughs) go ahead. Anyways, the mayor, John Means, called a town meeting that afternoon in order to raise funds for a couple of different things. First, he wanted to raise money to post a reward for anyone willing to give any information about this crime. Second, he was raising money to hire a detective because he didn't believe that the city of Ashland police were equipped enough to find answers. The town raised $1,000 to about $3,000, which uh, is today's equivalent to $22,000 to about $40,000. I'm actually not sure why there's such a discrepancy between the numbers. (laughs) Like, it kind of, it kind of is weird. Like, did you raise $1,000 or did you raise $3,000? I mean, just say it. J.D. Morris from Ohio was the first detective on the case. J.D. immediately deemed John Gibbons, the father who was working out of town, as the guilty party. Mind you, evidence wasn't really a thing, nor were there any witnesses, so it's my conclusion that he was going with the easy route by blaming the father since he wasn't there that night. According to the Aussie homegirl Bella, Martha actually corroborated this theory by stating her husband had bouts of psychosis and often threatened to burn the home down and that she and the children were actually afraid of him. Um, In addition to that, I forgot to mark it down, um, she claims that he also said that he wished they were in hell so he could pour fire on her or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. And that he often threatened to drown himself in the pond um, next to their home. So one of the things um, the authorities did when J.D. first accused John, um, they kind of like drained and dug up that pond to search for his body. So I did see a couple theories that where people said they thought that he killed the kids and burned down the home and killed himself, and I guess that's why they drained that pond. Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin wasn't buying this theory and attempted to end the witch hunt before it began. Lisa Marie Fuqua revisited the Ashland tragedy story last year on Medium.com, and she wrote that Heflin knew he had to find John and bring him in for questioning since the newspapers were already running stories that John was responsible for the death of the teens and the burned home. So Heflin tracked John down in a remote area of West Virginia where he was working and informed him of the tragic news. So the news hadn't even made it to him yet. He had no idea that his um, children and the neighbor had been killed and the home burnt down and all that. So records of John being at work at the work site cleared his name. And this is where the uh, tragic situation gets a little funny because apparently the rowdy citizens of Ashland ran Detective J.D. Morris out of town upon learning that he was wrong about John. You always hear stories about back in the day about, like, angry mobs and stuff like that, and I guess they were just fed up. Like This is the case for angry mobs, for sure. <laughs> and uh, I guess they were fed up with J.D. And, and his lies without doing any detective work, so they ran him to the train station, and he hopped on the train, and they didn't see him again. Um, apparently at the local general store, one of the owners, Mr. Powell, waited on a regular customer named George Ellis. Making casual conversation, Mr. Powell wondered aloud who was going to take the fall now since John Gibbons was cleared. This made George visibly panicked, and from that point forward, he avoided all eye contact with Mr. Powell. As a deflection, George shouted about state's evidence and knowing who who may have done it, then quickly exited the store. 
Before he knew it, he was at Heflin's hotel room stating that he lived near the Gibbons and had some suspicions about who committed the heinous crimes against the teens. At this point, with Heflin being an experienced U.S. Marshal, he knew he needed a witness, so he started to work on George. He told George that if someone was guilty of a crime informed if someone who was guilty of a crime informed on the others that were involved, the informer would most likely get a lesser sentence. This is when George started spilling the beans and also implicated his accomplices, William Neal and George Kraft. Carly, do you want to read the full confession? Oh boy, I sure do. A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, first of all weird, (laughs) and that he was going to have intercourse with her, and he wanted me to come along. About midnight, the fatal night, we all started, Kraft, Neil, and myself, and when we got to the house, Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards, I went in. Robbie was the first aroused, and he started to get up when Kraft said, you had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, you had better stay away from there, when Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully six feet from the bed under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed and they both said, George Kraft, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him and I held her while he outraged her. Neil then struck her on the head with the big end of the crowbar and she instantly died after throwing up her hands. Kraft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come help him. He then outraged her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls, and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over the bodies, and set them to fire with a match. We then left the house. Um, So one of the things that I did read, and unfortunately I didn't get to mark down which was which, was that both of the girls were known as... Um, kind, well-mannered, um, good-looking, and one of them seemed to be pretty developed for her age. Fanny. Fanny? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, not that it excuses it at all, but that's, I guess that's why these grown men were attracted to young girls, because they were just, I don't know, pretty and developed, which is nasty and perverted, but... Yeah. <laughs> According to the Commonwealth Heritage Group, after Ellis's confession, Kraft and Neal were located and arrested as well. The three were taken to the Callisburg County Jail, which was around five miles away from the actual crime scene. Kraft, Ellis, and Neal were put in the very same cell, and overnight, Ellis apparently had a change of heart and recanted the very next morning. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, shocker there. <laughs> William Neal and Ellis Kraft were convicted in a 10-day trial in January and sentenced to death. However, they appealed. George Ellis was tried in May of 1882 when he was convicted for his role in the crime and sentenced to life in jail. At this point, we realized that we had conflicting stories between the Commonwealth Heritage Group and Bella Fiore's YouTube channel. 
The Commonwealth Heritage Group says that George Ellis's sentence was unpopular with the area residents, some of whom formed a mob, removing Ellis from his cell and later lynching him in Ashland. In efforts to avoid another lynch mob, Neil and Kraft were transferred to Grayson, Kentucky, via steamship on November 1st, 1882. <laughs> steamship is cracking me up. <laughs> a crowd attempted to thwart this effort when a... Thwart. <laughs> when a... Hold on. That reminds me of that Donald Trump gif or gif. Oh, the... Where you go, thick. Yeah, thwart. Kyle... Kyle said it was Jif, but I have reason to believe it's Gif or Jod and not and God. <laughs> you yeah, know what but I mean? because graphic, graphic something format. Graphic, it's a it's a g graphic. So I'm saying g Gif, Gif. A crowd attempted to to thwart this effort when a group of eighteen young men commandeered a ferry and followed the steamship. <laughs> Firing Listen. two. <laughs> Hold on. So imagine, imagine the O.J. Simpson trial back in the day. Imagine it in the 1800s, and instead of him escaping in the Ford Bronco, they're chasing him down the river in a steamship and a tugboat and a barge or something. <laughs> oh my gosh! So they followed the steamship and fired two pistol shots in their pursuit. Prison guards on the steamship returned fire with, quote-unquote, some 1,500 shots in a two-minute hail of lead. Dang. Killing four onlookers on the shore. The guards were never tried for their actions. So, so not only... Yeah, not only were the children killed, innocent bystanders were killed, too, just for, you know, <clears throat> peeping the steamboat race. <laughs> However, Bella Fiore says that the mob did not remove George Ellis from jail and lynch him. Bella says that these three suspects, were Ellis, Kraft, and Neil, were all put on the boat and sent to jail in Lexington to avoid the mob. And while on their way down the river, an angry mob followed them again via <laughs> steamboat and tried to overturn their ship, <laughs> tried to overturn God. the Mayflower <laughs> to destroy the prisoners. In addition, Neil talked to Ellis and told him that he couldn't believe that he would ruin his life like this and that he himself was an innocent man, to which Ellis replied, you and I both know we did this. Whatever the actual story may be, there was no evidence for the police to go off of. On January 16, 1882, Kraft and Neil both went to trial for the rapes and murders. Neil was the first, and the only thing they had was hearsay and shaky witness testimonies that claimed that they had seen him very close to the Gibbons' house. Ellis took the stand and retold his story, saying that Kraft forced him to go to the Gibbons' house with them at gunpoint. When telling his story on the stand, Ellis changed some information. He first told U.S. Marshal Heflin that Robert was awake before they were able to get to Fanny and Emma. However, while on the stand... Ellis said that they were able to get to Fanny and Emma, tape their mouths shut so they couldn't make any noise, and Robert was still asleep. Ellis said that Kraft lit the fire, and they all walked to the nearby cemetery around 3 a.m. When they arrived at the cemetery, Ellis claimed that Kraft and Neil tried to get him to sign a document saying that he wouldn't 
tell anyone and that he had until Saturday night to sign in or they would quote unquote end him. So I just want to know. I mean, did they, what were they doing? Using the typewriter, <laughs> typing this up? And they were like, all right. And they just pulled it out and were like, sign this baby right here. Signed it with like an ink and quill. Like. <laughs> Next, George Ellis's wife was called to the stand. She claimed that she woke up in the night at 12 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. And both times, George was at home. On February 6th, 1882, the jury deliberated for 17 minutes and found Neil guilty, sentencing him to be hanged. Kraft was also convicted and sentenced to be hanged. The two were scheduled for their hanging on February 14th. Valentine's Day, baby. Happy Valentine's Day. George Ellis still hadn't went on trial, but he was still confessing and recanting over and over. George George was off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he needed some help for sure. One of his stories was that he hired two men to help him. And he blamed Kraft and Neil because he had seen them that night. So his life was his life. His wife was just lying, huh? Yeah. Like <laughs> yes. just lying. He's even out though. here telling all kinds of stories and none of them were that he was at home. Oh. So she's like, I don't know, either she's seeing things or she's just straight up lying. She's loyal because it, after my <laughs> listen, after my husband confessed and recanted and confessed again, I wouldn't want him back. I wouldn't want him to be free. You know, I would want him to be hanged. George Ellis went on trial in May, and the jury actually deliberated for quite some time. After 22 hours of deliberation, George Ellis was found guilty, and they sentenced him to life in prison. Like the Commonwealth Heritage Group reported, the people were not happy about Ellis' sentence. They felt like that since Ellis was the only one to actually confess, it shouldn't be right for him to get life in prison while the other two were sentenced to be hanged. That evening, a group of 20 men got on a railway on railway cars and went to the prison where the three were incarcerated. The men went into the prison and captured Ellis, taking him back to Ashland and torturing him and finally killing him. So, basically, they lynched him in the 1800s. So, fun fact, lynching just now became, like, illegal. Yeet. Um, so, that's been going on for generations over uh what's the century Mm -hmm. so yeah fun fact go ahead once the boat arrived at the dock Kraft and neil were granted their appeals and a new trial was carried out in grayson kentucky however the verdict was still the same guilty and sentenced to death mr Kraft was hanged on october 12th 1883 and mr neil on march 27th 1885 i wonder why Mr. Kraft was hanged so much earlier than Mr. Neal. You know what I mean? That's two whole years. Hmm. I don't know. That's weird stuff. Um, so today I went to the location of where this happened. There is a house there. It's obviously not the same house because the house burned down. Um, there's an empty lot next to the house. And then across the street where the Thomases lived, mm-hmm. um, that's another empty lot. And it's in a fairly, well, we always say Ashland's a small town. It's in a fairly well-known area. It's like right behind the Burger Alley. So if you um, live in Ashland, it's kind of behind where Tudor's and Subway is. We both asked around um, on Facebook to see if anybody had heard any, you know, conflicting stories or had some like myths 
handed down during the generations. But I guess since it's happened in the late 1800s, we obviously know nobody's still alive. But um, I guess there's just not a lot of hearsay being passed down. Um, you know, the research has been done and the research has been captured and printed and um, a new book just came out. So I think we'll probably um, do a deep dive into that and do a follow-up episode probably in 2021. Um, mm-hmm. And like we said, with Jan Neisel and with the Ashland tragedy, um, things like this, you know, news travels fast. It's a small town and there's not a lot going on here. So there's a lot of um, information out there on it. So like I said, we'll get we'll get through the book and we'll follow up. And there are a few more things, local things, that we'll explore later on. Um, like Carly said in the beginning, we are going to talk about another local case, except this one happened, um, like she said, closer to the Richmond area of Kentucky. Yeah. First, I just wanted to say... Um... Thanks to David Spradlin, he actually gave us uh, pictures of the graves of uh, Fanny, Robert, and Emma. So mm-hmm. we will post those for sure. Um, so thanks to him. Uh, thanks to Daryl Smith for uh, posting a link about the Ashland tragedy. And so yeah, go ahead. And yeah, Paul Castle told our homie uh, Josh Blanton about the book. So um, we'll talk to him too. Josh also said that Paul um, leads the ghost tour in Ashland. And I guess this is one of the areas that they revisit. Um, So that could be be another part of our follow-up. So once we get the book and once we get another couple episodes in, we can come back and um, do a follow-up depending on how you guys are... um, receptive to this episode or not if y'all don't like it we're not doing it i'm sick of y'all <laughs> just kidding um <laughs> so yeah like i said um <clears throat> savannah spurlock so when it comes to savannah spurlock um this crime took place in 2019 and um it started off in lexington so lexington is where i live And Lexington is also where the University of Kentucky is, for those who aren't familiar with Kentucky. Um, Carly and I both went there. Carly and I, like I said, I live in Lexington now. Carly used to live in Lexington. Um, And where she was last spotted, Savannah was last spotted before her death, was at a bar that was actually directly behind where Carly's first dorm was and where my first dorm was. Um, it's a bar called the Other Bar on South Limestone, and in twenty nineteen, yeah, in twenty nineteen, January, this happened um, on January fourth, twenty nineteen. Um, I was not there that night, but it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be on that strip and bouncing from like the Other Bar, the Paddock, Tin Roof. Um, so yeah, this one this one hits close to home because when you when you see the surveillance footage, I'm seeing places that. I've been, you know, they have uh, a screenshot. I think it's the Richmond um, Police Department. They have a screenshot of the surveillance footage of them either walking towards or walking away. And I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll I'll get back to my notes in a second. Either towards or away the Good Samaritan Hospital parking garage. I've been in that parking garage several times. Like I said, I've been at the other bar several times. So like 
it's really weird. It's really weird, and I wasn't there that night, but I'm. there's probably a 95% chance that somebody I know was there. Yeah. Or somebody we knew saw this girl and didn't think anything of it. That's how close to home it is. According to the Courier-Journal, Savannah Spurlock, a mother of four, went missing on January 4th, 2019, after leaving a Lexington, Kentucky bar. She left and traveled to Garrett County. <laughs> I was definitely going to say Gerard or Gerard because I have never been in this county before. Um, Garrett County with David Sparks and two other men. So Garrett County is about one hour from Lexington and three hours um, roughly from our hometown. And this is also where David lived. The two other men eventually left the Sparks residence, leaving Savannah and David to themselves. At 3 a.m., Savannah called her mother on Facebook to let her know that she was having a good time with friends and to promise that she would be home the following morning. Apparently, Savannah was a woman of her word, and when she promised something, she meant it. The next morning rolled around, but Savannah was nowhere to be found. The following month, police questioned the two men and David, according to WTVQ. Allegedly, David told police that Spurlock came back to his house, fell asleep, and later woke him up to ask him where she was. He allegedly woke up again to her being gone. The authorities even searched the Sparks property but found nothing. In April, Savannah's blood was found in David's bedroom closet, but there still wasn't enough evidence to make an arrest. Yeah. Okay, okay I, I mean, I'm no lawyer. I'm no police officer. And I, I can see... I can see how some blood wouldn't be enough mm -hmm. to make an arrest, mm -hmm. but at the same time, the girl been missing for three months at this point. Yeah. You already questioned him, and he didn't deny her being there. Right. But there's blood in the closet, and you just leave. Like, all right then. What? <laughs> what's she doing in the closet? Mm -mm -mm. And I'm really not trying to make light of this. Um, ABC News revealed that in July 2019, one of Sparks' relatives reported a foul odor coming from his property and he became concerned. Police ended up discovering Savannah's body in a 19-inch deep grave. The plea deal reveals that David admitted to intentionally killing Savannah and that he acted alone according to court documents. The plea agreement described what happened as follows. During the early morning hours of January 4th, 2019, at 118 Price Court in Garrett County, Kentucky, the defendant, acting alone, intentionally caused the death of Savannah Spurlock. After so doing, he bound her legs and wrapped her body in plastic bags. He later transported her body to Fall Lick and buried her in the yard behind that residence. So, he intentionally caused her death at his residence and then went to Fall Lick to bury her in the yard of his parents' residence. Right. He did so with the intent to elude apprehension for the murder and to impair the evidence's availability in any future proceeding pertaining to that crime. And to add to what I just read, I'm going to insert a clip here of Kentucky State Police Detective Ty Chavis describing what he saw the moment he discovered Savannah Spurlock's body. Were you present when her body was unearthed? I was. Tell His Honor what you saw. Uh, Your Honor, I observed, uh, with the assistance of the FBI Special uh, or Evidence Response Team, uh, the body was exhumed from a clandestine grave. Um, that body was uh, concealed within multiple black trash bags. 
the body was unclothed, the feet were bound with tape, and uh, the body was in an unnatural position. And by that I mean her head and feet were in the same position. She was folded over in half. Okay. Did you find any um, anything lying next to her body against her body? I did. It, what did you find? It was uh, what I would describe as an accent rug, rectangular in shape, grayish in color. Okay. So a little more about the rug. David quickly got rid of it following the murder, and eventually we learned that he buried it with Savannah. But text message records actually reveal he sent his sister a message on the night of Savannah's death asking where he could buy a rug. So basically, he got blood on the rug, and to avoid suspicion, he needed to know where to buy a new one for replacement. And he ended up buying that rug at Walmart, and authorities actually have surveillance of that. So he was caught doing that um, once again tampering with evidence. Nice. <laughs> David Sparks was charged with murder, abuse of a corpse, and evidence tampering, and just yesterday, well, it's two days ago now, um, fast forward to the end of 2020, per the Herald Leader, he pled, and I've been seeing pleaded. Is it pled or pleaded? Because pled. Well, I asked mom, too, and this is a sidebar. I asked mom, too, because she's Webster. She knows everything. Mm. She's like a dictionary encyclopedia, whatever. Um, she said pled, but... Both, I know that sounds right too. both articles, well, I read more than two articles, but two of the articles that I have cited um, say pleaded, and then I was watching the news today about a completely unrelated case, and they said pleaded as well. Pleaded, this, according to Grammarly.com, pleaded is the commonly recognized past tense of plead, and pled is the form that can sometimes be used instead of it. Okay. So he pled guilty and likely faces a 50-year prison sentence. According to People Magazine, authorities still have not said what led David to kill Savannah or exactly how she died. Okay, that was my question. I want to know why he did that. No, he hasn't told yet. Well, it hasn't been revealed to the public yet. The Commonwealth's attorney, Andy Sims, believes justice was served and he hopes this is the beginning of some closure for Savannah's loved ones. However, Shaq Smith, who is the father of three of Savannah's children, said, I feel like it's a relief for everyone who was close to Savannah that there will be no trial to sit through. But to me, justice wasn't served. Shaq was quoted saying that to WHAS 11 in Louisville. Um, sidebar, WKYT has done a great job covering this case, so I highly recommend visiting their website to catch any details you may have missed. And shout out to the new Beyonce of WKYT, Miss Erica Bonner. Um, and that's the gist of it. We wanted to cover that because, like we said, it hit close to home. It was local, and we tried to do a local crime of the week, Kentucky crime of the week. And basically, that's what we did. We just wanted to go more in-depth with it. Um, a few things that I did want to speak about. So when this happened, um, you know, it hit the news in Kentucky very quick. And then it spread, um, like I said, ABC News. It wasn't just the local ABC affiliate. The actual national um, ABC News covered it. Um, there were several other podcasts done about it, several um, YouTube videos. And one of my best friends lives in Charlotte. And obviously she still sees local news because she's from Kentucky. But um, she would ask me almost daily, if there was any updates, if I had heard anything new, um, she just thought it was so sad and that stuff like that was happening so close to her loved ones back in Kentucky. Um, 
aside from that, people were kind of nasty about this when it first happened. Um, I wrote down a couple points and Carly, you can tell me if you remember seeing some of this stuff or hearing some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, because there was a Facebook group called, it was either Finding Savannah or Missing Savannah. And then now it's called Remembering Savannah. But um, when the Facebook group was started and, you know, just when people were talking about it generally on Facebook, sharing a picture, you know, saying, keep an eye out for her, she's missing, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. A few of the common themes amongst the haters was, number one, um, why is a single mother with multiple kids going out to the bars? Because she wants to. <laughs> and because if it's, it's none of your business. And her being a single mother with multiple children going out to bars means she deserves to die? Or it shouldn't be investigated as heavily? I don't understand the correlation there. Me either. Um, the other thing... They talked about her, you know, basically trying to slut-shame her for leaving with multiple men. Hey, buddy, if she likes orgies, who cares? <laughs> Shut up, Carly's chicks. I'm just saying, who cares? Oh, God. Okay, so, not orgy-related, but you know me. Martell. Man-man. Mm -hmm. uh, Travis, for example. If I go out and I leave with those three, you know that's two of my good friends and my cousin. Yeah. But people around me might look, right. oh, look at this slut. Leave. You never know the situation. Mm, yeah. Stop trying to judge people. People just love to judge people. And once again, Shut does, your she, does she deserve to be murdered because she left with three men? Like, did she have it coming to her? Like, you know, this was owed to her because she had the nerve to go out and enjoy herself and leave with some, yeah. some people for the opposite sex. Would you feel the same way if she was leaving with three women? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what if she was a lesbian? Right. She could have been sleeping with women. And nothing but wrong with it. Don't be judging people. But you wouldn't judge. Like like she said, if she was leaving with a group of women, you don't know what they about to do. Exactly. You wouldn't judge her. Um, and the last thing, which obviously, for obvious reasons, grinds my effing gears, but people had something to say about her having kids that were biracial. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> yeah. Like, some people were... Um, you know, doing the slut shaming thing, but you know, basically, uh, equating her baby's dad to being a thug just because he's black or should have stuck to your kind and oh, this wouldn't have happened, stuff like that. And one of the guys that um, he's the guy that killed his wife. <laughs> yeah, and also one of the guys that she left with was black too. So they're you know, as soon as they see her with some uh, biracial kids and a black guy in that footage and this black man happened to have locks, uh, dreadlocks. I try not to call them dreads anymore because there's nothing dreadful about them. Um, they just said, oh, she likes black guys. She left with this dude that has locks. He's a thug. She deserved what she got. Who are the, these people who say that kind of stuff, who are the black people that they know? <laughs> Can you come meet my family? But listen, even, even, that's the thing, Carly, they don't even know black people. Half the time when people make these dumb comments, they don't even know anybody who's remotely different from them. Whether it be race, whether it be sexual orientation, whether it be gender, whether it be religion, they have all these harsh judgments for groups of people that they've never encountered in their lives. Freaking idiot. <sighs> Woosa. So, um, aside from Shaq, um, 
and her mother saying basically that she knew that David did it. The family does not want to comment yet. Um, also, and I don't blame them. We'll, we'll link that WKYT video or interview that um, I was just referring to. And her family just, this is super sad to me because they don't even want to speak on it because they're just afraid something's going to happen. They'll jinx themselves by even speaking on it that, you know, there's going to be some loophole or mm-hmm. some shoddy piece of evidence that'll get thrown or something like that. So they're just, they're just keeping it silent for now and then they'll speak more after um he is sentenced so yeah i feel like that was kind of heavy it was but it needed to be because i'm tired of people judging people for stupid stuff and like we said she had four kids so that are that's four children without a mother that's very sad and um how do you explain that to four children yeah so that is what is happening in Kentucky. Um, So we had the Ashland tragedy, which was super tragic. Um, Three teens murdered, two of them brutally um, assaulted in the 1800s. And then in 2019, uh, we don't know all the details yet. Those haven't been revealed to the public, but in 2019, um, this young lady was violated and had her life taken from her. So... Yeah, it's and if we find any more information, we'll keep you guys updated. Um, but that's why we kind of took another day because this stuff just came out. Yeah, I mean, we had, I think we've both been following it since it happened, and then it kind of died down. And um, yeah, it was two days ago he um, pled guilty. So we had to get that done for you. Um, our next episode, look it up, please. It is Golden State Killer. Oh, okay. Okay. We might, <laughs> Why do you not sound excited about that? We might change that around because next week is when we're going to play around with the remote recording, remember? Oh, yeah. And for the Golden State Killer, I was thinking about reaching out to Holly to see if she wanted to be a guest. Okay. So we might switch it around. So stay tuned. We'll let you know what we do. And um, that is all we have for tonight. I need to go home and edit this so <laughs> it can be ready for Friday yeah, morning. And if you guys can figure out a way for us to stop procrastinating, please let us know. <laughs> because I really just hate myself at this point. Well, this week was bad. This week was bad for me. I had three deadlines on one day. And, um, you know, you got you got a whole ass baby. So. But I wasn't doing anything all week, and I and you came over at ten, and at nine forty five, I was still typing. <laughs> I mean, come on, Carly, get it together. See, I was trying to cape for you, but whatever. Cape, throw on my cape. So next week we will. I'm guessing we will probably skip Golden State Killer. But we won't skip the episode. No, we'll just we're just gonna change it around. Um, so we have what would you want to do, Tamla Horsford? No, because that's gonna be okay. A lot Todd of Todd Culpepper. I don't even know who that is. Col- oh wait, not Culpepper. Todd Culhep. He's from Jennifer's neck of the woods. My, Aww. they told me about him. Um. Or Michelle O'Connell. I like hers. Michelle. Okay. Let's do Michelle. All right, so next week, Michelle O'Connell. And if you don't hear Michelle O'Connell, that just means we were disorganized again. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> okay, that is all we have for tonight. And we out. Peace out. Holla, baby flamingo. Speaking of baby flamingos. <laughs>
Carly's one-year-old waved at my flamingo tattoo today. <laughs> I wish you guys could see his wave. I'm going to try to get a video of him waving and I'll post it because it's so cute. Because he is the CEO and the supervisor and the head baby in charge. So we'll show you some footage. All right, see ya. Bye.